We live inside a dream. I hope I see all of you again. Every one of you. Welcome to Twin Peaks Rewatch. From Idle Thumbs, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. And on this episode, we are wrapping up, for now, uh, <coughs> this run of Twin Peaks Rewatch by delving into mail, forum posts, Twitter, um, all sorts of different things that listeners of this podcast have written in. Yep. All the stuff. We, we had thought we'd be doing more reader mail over the course of Twin Peaks The Return, but it turned out no one, including us, knowing anything week to week because the show is just was unfolding in such a bizarre yeah. way. Plus, there being more to talk about, like more minutes of podcast per episode than there were actually minutes of Twin Peaks meant that we sort of put it all at the end. So right. here we are. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's also worth remembering that there are, these episodes are actually considerably longer than original Twin Peaks episodes because they weren't broadcast no, on network television yeah, no with commercials. There was yeah. yeah. That would that would have been a thing that would have been worth looking up and I'll just say that now. How many minutes of Twin Peaks in total did we get now versus like seasons 1 and 2 combined as broadcast hours? It's got to be pretty close. It's probably comparable all yeah. things considered cuz yeah. you know we got 18 episodes in season 2 was like 22 episodes or something but it was they're measurably shorter they're only 40 yeah, like minutes long probably minutes, yeah, yeah as opposed to like 55 to 59 this year mm-hmm. all i'm interested in chris is a value proposition of number of minutes of twin <laughs> peaks uh per season yeah and i feel like i got my money's worth divided this year. by your showtime subscription yeah if we ever do a season three rewatch which mm-hmm. is something that i we both i think would like to do but definitely not right, right now. now i feel like i need some time uh before i can jump back into that uh it would be so different. I mean, I guess since we're here on the wrap-up episode, it's worth... I mean, we're obviously going to read everyone else's um, thoughts, but a thing I was just thinking about is that, you know, we talked a lot last week, and really, honestly, I would say maybe a lot for this entire second half of the season about how much of the return deals with these characters whose stories sort of... Spin out and then almost die on the vine, you know, like Red, for mm-hmm. instance. There's a lot of characters, or, or characters whose stories kind of conclude, but in no way overlap with any direct plot lines like Nadine and Dr. Jacoby. You know, I mean, they have a moment where they meet. Right, or but- Ed, Ed and Norma, or, I mean, somewhere kind of in the middle of those, like Audrey uh, is, you know, that story goes out with an incredible bang, but right. th- it's gone. Right, at that exactly. Point. And yeah. there's sort of we have scraps of thematic relevance to especially what's going on in part eighteen, but you know, the show leaves it totally yeah. open to us. And I think I was thinking about just over the last couple of days is that that would have to just end up being part of the I mean, part of the experience of watching that show is knowing this is all we're gonna get of this character when we encounter them yeah. in the show. I mean, even really big dramatic scenes, like when the when the little boy gets run over by Richard Horn and we get these long lingering shots of the, of the uh, onlookers, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I wasn't expecting that we were going to get the specific stories of any of those people, but that was a 
we lingered yeah. there a lot. And then that's it. You know, I mean, that's basically it. And I, much has been made, including by us and, and by other people, uh, about how, how much of this season sort of, quote, matters mm-hmm. uh, in the context of especially what happens in part 18. Was this a dream world? Was it some alternate reality? Was the timeline changed and therefore none of this ever happened? Um, and I think one of the things that you'd have to contend with doing a rewatch of the season, knowing all this, um, is that the this season, I guess, just part of what it is trying to do is look at all of these other sort of ancillary stories and characters on their own merits and totally unto themselves and not necessarily as part of a single coherent plot or um, kind of set of causal relationships. And that's something that uh, Twin Peaks season two is, you know, often in some cases maligned, including to some degree by us for, (laughs) for also having these sort of weird um, kind of just bizarre rambling threads. It feels very different. I would say in that season than it does in this season. Yeah. It just by, by the way it was constructed of just different writers, different directors, almost different showrunners. It feels a lot less intentional. Yeah. Uh, But it's sort of, it's all, it's, and, and who knows if that was something Lynch was trying to revisit and do his way. Uh, but it, it, does, almost, it does feel sort of owned and claimed now by season three yeah. as sort of maybe that's just the part of the, the vernacular of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And the, the other thing it makes me think about in, in, a, in a world like Twin Peaks, again, especially in the context of Twin Peaks The Return, in which we're dealing with cosmic forces, possible multiple universes or timelines, mm-hmm. whatever it is, um, part of what this season kind of says to me in retrospect is that all those little moments do matter, not because they're specifically feeding into some canonical plot line where everything's going to get connected on a Wikia page, but simply because they ha- they happened somewhere in some reality mm-hmm. and that's it. And, you know, all, all of our lives and all that anything happens to anyone really only matters because of the people directly involved in it, regardless of all what other connections can be drawn to larger events or world history or anything. Um, and I, I think doing a rewatch and having that in the brain would make for probably a very different experience. You wouldn't constantly be sitting there being like, Oh, how does this, how is this going to tie into this? And why, why I'm looking for this connection and that connection. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to a rewatch entirely for that reason, for being able to, Say, okay, well, now I do understand the form of this thing, and I understand why, even if I don't understand explicitly why each scene is here, just having a sense of where it lands in the greater puzzle. Um, it reminds me of when I watched There Will Be Blood for the first time versus mm. when I watched it every subsequent time, because that, that that movie is obviously far more like narratively tight than, yeah, than Twin film. Peaks, than yeah, Twin yeah, Peaks yeah. The Return, or than most David Lynch movies. Yeah. But it is a movie that has all these snippets of this character's life, and it ju- it has huge time cuts, and you're brought into almost every scene, basically, in media res in a moment in the life of the protagonist of that movie. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I... I mean, I got to the end, and you, you experienced the end of that movie, which is really intense, but then watching it from the beginning... Just seeing the first shot of him like falling into the well, and then the second shot of the or the second scene of the church showing up, and all these other things. Sorry, this is a very uh, obscure <laughs> reference. If you haven't seen, there will be blood. It 
it's not very common that I watch movies or television shows like that, but I but yeah, I'm looking forward to it with Twin Peaks. That's a good. That's a I, that's actually kind of a good touchstone because there are certain kinds of directors, and I don't mean um, to say that this is like an intrinsically better way to make a movie or a better director. But if you, I would say, if you think of a director like Stanley Kubrick, for instance, I would say that is also a director who fills his movies frequently with scenes whose direct meaning in the sort of cause and effect chain is not as clean or tidy as in, you know, what we typically expect in filmic storytelling, mm-hmm. even though he's obviously an extraordinary, meticulous, extraordinarily meticulous director who, who makes all his choices very intentionally. Um, and movies like that can be sort of frustrating and uh, repelling sometimes because you they signal meaning so intensely because the choices are all clearly made with so much intention and yet you don't always know exactly what that meaning is and I, There Will Be Blood is a, I think a really good example of that a lot of P.T. Anderson films kind of feel like that especially his later career Yeah, and David Lynch is very much feels like that with the added thing that those is sort of less so in the case of those other directors which is that he puts such completely weird and un- unearthly things on the screen all the time that it almost like screams like there's got to be a puzzle to unlock here. Especially in this season, there's so much lore language that does make it seem like there is a lock and key for everything. Um, and there probably is to some extent. Um, yeah, but part of it also is, I think, supposed to just be to give you the feeling of drowning in it. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, so... Speaking of that... Speaking of drowning in lore... Speaking of of maybe trying to over-explain Twin Peaks The Return, um, some people have pointed out something that we should have thought, I think. Uh, The the population sign in Odessa, Texas, um, while true that it is accurate as of 2010... Uh, which we took to mean perhaps the timeline we were we were seeing that included that sign is the year 2010. Uh, that is just still how the signs look because they haven't updated them. Yeah, re- <laughs> because re- real the census, fact. Uh, census hasn't happened again yet. It might even be that they just only update their city limit signs every 10 years. But that, right, but yeah. that's also when they do the census. Yeah, if you go on Google Street View and find a major road at the uh, city limits of Odessa, it's the same population as it is in Twin Peaks. So yeah. who even knows? Though, what, even though we, we know now the, that the population has risen... Factual. So I can only assume that Cooper has traveled to the future, the year 2019, the last year <laughs> which Odessa will have that population on its sign. Uh, and as you know, 2019, I, I don't know anything. Uh, uh, if you add one and nine, it's 10, the yeah. number of completions. So that's I mean, his car model year, if you look carefully, was clearly 2019 from the, uh, the yeah. fender design and the uh, headlights <laughs> that were used. Clearly the 2019 yeah. model year. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, that sign means nothing other than they're in Odessa. <laughs> Did we talk about the fact that Odessa is like the jackrabbit capital of the world and home of the world's largest jackrabbit? Yeah, it has that's, jackrabbit wrangling that, rodeos. That's amazing. I, it's it's uh, it has again no specific meaning, but I liked that Cooper went to a place that is basically America's jackrabbit's palace. Yeah, I mean that that is a total Lynch thing, right? Is that kind of that's e- like more of a Mark Frost thing? Reverber- I think like weird, oh, think so? weird, yeah. weird, obscure Americana that if you happen to know it ties into another oh, plot point. Oh, sure, maybe, maybe that. I guess, but I, I guess I more mean just the they clearly usage. both like it. I mean, it's like it's a more hilarious version of like the white horse on the mantle. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, you don't, it doesn't, it could mean lots of different things and it suggests a lot of meaning, mm-hmm. um, but it, you don't need to know the exact thing it means to get that right. sort of echo in your brain. Yep. Um, something that was uh, pointed out, this is a very quick observation that I, I liked from Gnome Gal on Twitter. Uh, is the bleeding guy in the jail cell, is it possible that that character is only visible to Chad? <laughs> I really like, I don't know if that bears out, um, but I really like it as a possible I think reality. he's the, well, he's there before Chad goes down there, I believe. Yeah, and I think that he's the only person that Chad talks to. But we also don't see any other characters interact with right, the bleeding guy ever. Right, we've all been like, why, does it, why doesn't uh, James or Freddy... Yeah, freak out about this and bleeding why guy. Isn't, yeah. Why doesn't anyone in the sheriff's department want to get him medical attention? It just seems like a really noticeable <laughs> oversight. Hopefully, Chad is just messed up at this point. Or I mean, hopefully that that guy from now on, the bleeding guy, I will name Chet. Chet, <laughs> bleeder Chet. Yeah, I um, I. A th- this is such a strange connection to draw, but um. Whatever I'm, I'll just. Draw I wasn't it, planning on. I wasn't planning on bringing this up now. But Krista Golby uh, wrote in. Uh, she said, "I laughed out loud in the office when you pronounced Jif in Cole's voice, comedy gold." Uh, but I wanted to talk about Nadine. People have mentioned a few times her super strength coming after she tried to commit suicide and regressed into her high school self. I think this is because the first time we see her strength, it's more subtle. She bends the exercise machine after she gets upset by Ed's grease getting on her drape runners. I find it really interesting that she was already a, quote, supernatural character before the events of Laura's death. Love listening to the podcast. Thank you. So the the point she's making is that it wasn't actually Nadine's age mental age regression that triggered her super strength. She already had super strength, which is oh, yeah, cl- I, it's clear in the show, but I think often that often gets yeah. forgotten by people. I remember that, and I, 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 might, I might have muddied that when we talked about it. But yeah, I, I've always really enjoyed that Nadine is a character who, from frame one in the show, is a woman with an eye patch and superpowers. Yeah. Like, yeah. in terms of feeling like you're dropped into a, the middle of a soap opera. I've thought that always worked well. Like you, you don't need to know anything about it, but you get sort of you get the sense that there could have been 10 years of Twin Peaks on like daytime CBS before you started watching right, that, that, resulted, had, that Yeah, that resulted somehow, in Nadine getting yeah. super super yeah. strength. Uh, and the only reason I the reason I bring that up in the context of what we were just talking about is because the notion that um Chad could just see this bleeding guy for some reason that may or may not be related to any of the other supernatural things that we can mainly concern ourselves with in Twin Peaks, the return is a, is definitely darker than Nadine just being really strong. Mm-hmm. But Nadine being really strong is never directly connected to anything else going on in Twin Peaks. There's never, it's never something that's like, Oh, and because of the lodges, she's imbued. Right. That is just, it's just there the whole time. And I, I think that, as you say, like it's we know that we know that that's true, but it, it is I think rarely remarked on that it's just a purely outrageous element that isn't connected to any other Twin Peaks lore. It's just there. There's totally precedent for just sometimes there are just weird things here. Well, that could have also started with she's so mad that she bends her exercise equipment. Full stop. Well, and then that got turned into. Maybe it's because she has super strength. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
It's true because people are still surprised by how incredibly super strong she is. Yeah. But regardless, but you, but you're talking about on the writing side why it ended up that yeah. way, right? In terms of what's actually just given to us as an audience. Yeah. It's just always been there. Yeah. Anyway, um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's let's talk about some crunchier stuff here. So. Jamie Leipert writes in and says, Hi guys, greeting from Ireland. Big fan of the podcast and I've loved hearing your thoughts on each episode. I've been incredibly conflicted since viewing the series finale. The finale in the series as a whole shouldn't need an explanation and should be just about the experience of watching it and the emotions it stirs up. But alas, my curious side demands an explanation and I've been reading many different theories on what the Twin Peaks finale could mean. This one is my favorite. Uh, And then Jamie links to a piece on waggish.org that's w-a-g-g-i-s-h dot org that is a um, essentially a theory of the events of the finale and then by extension much of Twin Peaks The Return anyway keep up the great work guys best wishes Jamie Leipert the author of that piece basically postulates they they self-admittedly do their best Mark Frost impression and say this is (laughs) this is what I think the sort of clockwork inner workings of season three might have been yeah. before it sort of actually hit production and and flew in all the directions that it flew. Uh, do you want to try and summarize what it was? Oh, man. Um, I'll do my best, but I'm probably going to get pieces of it slightly off because it's a very intricate yeah. clockwork piece. Um, man, the basic postulation is that Laura Palmer was placed on earth as basically a like Garmin Bosia bomb as sort of a vessel for intensely concentrated pain and suffering to then be used against Judy yeah to destroy Judy and it sort of it paints Cooper and I guess basically the Blue Rose task force as being uh, ultimately pretty cold and methodical Mm -hmm. people who somehow divine what what they need to do uh and it is basically destroy Laura Palmer to save the world is right. the postulate is and what it postulates and i mean e- even describing it through those means makes it sound like ridiculous and basically like the plot of of heroes or lost or some tv show like that which uh but i i and i feel like that actually does the, the this write up a disservice yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty interesting take as far as um, as far as attempts to explain the specific workings of this plot down to like specific character motivations and cause and effect. This was my favorite. Uh, yeah the the other the other component of the, so there was the Laura Palmer as the, as this writer refers to her as the bomb mm-hmm. in this plot, and then there's the lore which is Cooper and Diane kind of acting out these events and then um, sort of finally attracting Judy with like their sexual encounter, which this person makes the argument we have precedent for with the teens at the beginning right of, the of the series in front of the box. Right. Uh, and then there's what the writer, this writer calls the cage, which is sort of a pocket dream world that is created by the white lodge that includes this Odessa, Texas, kind of reality as well. And as that Twin, hollowed out the, version of Twin Peaks, basically. Exactly, the yeah. sort of weird version of Twin Peaks. And the thing I like about uh, how they depict the, ver- how they sort of explain that version of Twin Peaks as being this cage is that it's a version, it's a version of Twin Peaks created by the memory 
of I th- I think the suggestion is by the memory of both Laura and Cooper. I think um, so. It seemed with mostly Laura, but mostly Laura. I think yeah. Uh, with the, there's good supporting evidence for that, such as the fact that the double R diner, for instance, doesn't have the to go right. banner, which is something that Laura would never have seen. Yeah, there, there's there's a, a that, some good that article some good has takes. a bunch of really specific specific uh, details that I like to chew on, even if I don't believe that they're intentional. Yeah, yeah. Like the it, it proposes even the idea that maybe Cooper and Diane thought that they would be going to 1989. Yeah, that they would be if the world was literally if they were expecting to wake up inside of basically Laura's dream. Uh, in, mm. in this pocket world, that it would potentially be a world stuck in 1989, and they proposed that's maybe why they were driving there, specifically in a vintage car, because right. they thought they would end up having to blend in in that way. But instead, they wake up in a world that is a completely bizarre extrapolation of of 1989, but uh, where Laura's sort of emotional state and trauma is being repeated and drawn forward, but without. Uh, any of the specifics of the world we know. Like, it sort of just mm-hmm. spun off in a completely different direction from there. Weird theory. <laughs> uh, and I thought it was, like, I thought it was an interesting way of pinning some of the little details together with Cooper saying, wait, what year is it at the very end yeah. of all of the stuff? But yeah. again, like, that was one of the places where I felt like the author went way out on a limb, but I still thought it was a cool uh, mm-hmm. postulation all the same. I agree. There was a lot of good stuff that I, I really enjoyed reading it. And um, the piece is entitled, so you can more easily search for it, Twin Peaks Finale, A Theory of Cooper, Laura, Diane, and Judy. And that is on waggish.org. Yeah. I, the other thing that I liked about that story was, or about this person's theory, although there are big pieces of it that just don't line up sort of emotionally with my reaction yeah, to Twin yeah, Peaks, I, agree, I, agree. I liked that the, the author of it attempted to do what a lot of people are doing right now, which is reconcile all of the little sort of pieces of the puzzle, but in a way that still leaves the ending there. I thought that the, their moral read on the ending was still very ambiguous and mm-hmm. really muddled where maybe Cooper thought that he was doing something that was ultimately good, uh, which is this, you know, 25 year long mission to destroy this entity. But at the same time, it still holds the thing that I, that resonated with me the most, which was watching Cooper, basically no longer be attuned sort of stumble and yeah yeah yeah. he's dragging laura palmer basically through a bunch of realities or this woman that he thinks is laura palmer like cooper having lost his way or cooper being sort of stuck inside of the trauma of his own experiences with this yeah you know maybe he ultimately does what he says he's going to do even if his even if it is this like ridiculous mission to destroy a god but it's like it's not good no yeah. matter what how you so slice it we got a good email about that that i really liked that i think dovetails nicely with what you're saying this is from evan tognati who writes regarding gordon cole's explanation of having information shared between him briggs and cooper for 25 years i'm also put off by the idea of cooper having some grander knowledge before arriving to twin peaks but i'm wondering if it's necessary to interpret it that way Given the Lodges seemingly exist out of time, couldn't Cooper have gained knowledge after getting sent to the Black Lodge and sent back 25 years? Or Jeffries, perhaps? Not saying it's a satisfying explanation, as it relies on wonky time travel logic, but it might be better than the actual retcon. Um, so that's that's one thought. But then mm-hmm. this next one is the actually the one I had in mind, sorry, um, from the same writer. Also a question for both of you. I've seen a lot of discussion as to whether or not the ending is a victory or a failure. There are a lot of positive spins on what, quote, actually happened, unquote, and some of them pr- are pretty convincing. That said, I think it's obvious that tonally the ending isn't victorious at all. 
I'm guessing almost nobody walks away from the last moments of the return thinking, yeah, Cooper did it. So if you were presented with a really compelling story or lore explanation that felt directly at odds with the tone of the work, which would win out? Does it matter that Cooper wins if the depiction of him winning is so deeply troubling? Can there be hope in an ending that makes the viewer feel so hopeless? So I think that's really a lot, of, much of what you were just saying. Yeah, it, it feels like a lot of those things are going on at once. Like I had also seen someone, uh, man, I should have quoted who it was, but someone on the Idle Thumbs forums pointed out that, like, that even amidst all the other things, they saw, they personally saw the lights going out on the Palmer House to be in a weird sort of, in a dark way, a positive thing. Where they said, "Well, the Palmer, right. the Palmers sure. are no longer beset by electricity." The sentence that the person said is that ceiling fan will never spin again. And it's right. like, okay, that's true. Like it feels like there are so many different forces working positive and negative that it's hard yeah. to come out with any one feeling. And that's part of why I think the ending is really good. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, you and I talked about this a little bit in between recording last week's and this week's, but I think it's interesting to look at the end of season two of Twin Peaks and then also look at the end of season three of Twin Peaks because it seems almost like there are, there's there's more there's more repetition in terms of Cooper's storyline se- between season two and season three than, than, than yeah. we talked about. I mean, yeah. Wyndham Earl takes Annie into the Black Lodge yeah. and Cooper goes in to the Black Lodge to try and pull Annie out, like to basically try to do the same thing that he's trying to do with Laura. It seems yeah. like he's, yeah. he's it's going funny how similar that is. Yeah. He's pushing against basically the fabric of reality as we understand it to try and change the fate of a woman who he seems sworn to protect yeah. and pushes so hard against that stuff that it basically destroys him. And he did that. He's done that twice now. Like yeah. Cooper came out of the lodge wrong at the end of season two or like the wrong Cooper came out or he got himself trapped yeah, yeah. and basically like reality was yeah. messed up for 25 years. Then yeah, we saw the end of season three. He basically tries it he again. Does it, and when you consider, I mean, he, he pops back out of the lodge and then immediately, right. Essentially like, re attempts. Yeah. It goes back he, in uh, with a, an exponentially more t- like, messed up version of it where it's like not only am I going to just try to pull someone back out of this weird space I'm going to use it to go back and actually change the past so that this will never happen again yeah uh, but it happens like a thousand times worse then he immediately goes to Odessa Texas grabs some, grabs Laura Palmer again and <clears throat> drags her back to her house I know sorry I don't mean to re- repeat myself yeah uh, Twin Peaks uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's true I the ending of season two is so incredibly dark um, I think I think it is ultimately a darker ending than the ending of the return because it is there isn't I don't know that the ending of season two of Twin Peaks provides any suggestion that anything positive happened at all. I mean, it's an, it's it's entirely distressing. I, mean, I guess Annie is safe. He gets Annie's body yeah. out. Yeah, but, but he doesn't but even then, know what state we, she's in until, right. until you see like that one's cut in Fire Walk with me. No, that's a missing scene. That was not, not mm-hmm. even shown until later where you see Annie in the hospital. Yeah mumbling the same thing she says to Laura in her dream, I think is what that scene is. Yeah. Yeah. But, but just the idea, I mean, I just, the idea of season two ending with evil Cooper doppelganger being unleashed on the world is, I mean, I still find that terrifying to think about. Obviously the, you know, we've gotten a lot of follow up to that because we followed that doppelganger around for a ton of episodes now. Right. But we spent 25 years without that. Exactly. Without that resolution. Yeah. Uh, but like, it, kn- knowing how much more competent of a human being Dale Cooper is than, say, Leland Palmer, the idea that 
the incredibly intelligent, competent one has that version of him running around. That yeah. was pretty dark. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's another um, there's another interpretation that got sent to us a number of times, and this email came from Mike Baker, who says, Loved your podcast. Have you seen this article which lays out how if you watch parts 17 and 18 simultaneously side by side, they tell a synchronized and more complete story? And this was a medium post by the user Onantiad, O-N-A-N-T-I-A-D, uh, and it's, it is uh, titled the... Re- the Episodes 17 and 18 of Twin Peaks, The Return, are meant to be watched in sync. So Mike Baker continues, It makes me wonder, are there other episodes that align like this? It provides an explanation for some of the prolonged silences and scenes like sweeping the bar floor. So anyway, what's your next rewatch going to be? We're going to rewatch all of Twin Peaks at the same time, 18 episodes, all (laughs) overlaid. Um, Have you ever seen that, uh, the thing someone made of all, at the time, all six Star Wars films? Yeah. overlaid it's really kind of interesting yeah I, I mean it doesn't mean anything i think, I think exercises like this are always actually ultimately interesting because of yeah. the way that our brains work yeah, like i agree I, I i don't personally subscribe to the theory that twin peaks 17 and 18 were meant to be overlaid I literally yeah. i think you know if there are thematic echoes or even time and pacing echoes maybe that's interesting and deliberate but i just can't see I just can't see that being an interesting thing to Lynch. I mean, I feel like he talks so much about how what he values is for you to watch these things in as close to a theatrical experience as possible. Like watching yeah. it at home on a big TV with the sound turned on. Yeah. Um, he has said that he thinks that people could watch the episodes of The Return out of order and get the same right. experience. But I still think that is also fundamentally different than using some technological means outside of a normal view- viewing experience to sort of subvert and bash the show against itself i I just i I just don't see it i don't i don't Um, think that's i don't think that's what he intends you to do i think there might very well be intentional um resonances that maybe he even you know gets as detailed as syncing up to a to a minute and second marker that wouldn't surprise me at all um you know, at, at, right, just, at 10 minutes, minutes into the episode, yeah. I want this to happen. Right. But, but and, and on in this next episode, 10 minutes in, I want this thing to happen. And those things are relevant. But I, I, I don't think that consistently throughout the entire episodes, they are meant to be one to one sync locked. Yeah. And the, you know. the show just feels so interested in each sort of each scene or each act of an episode being a vignette in and of itself that's allowed to sort of breathe in its own way that I can't imagine him seeing the hour long boxes as being, as being whole works that are meant to be synced up. It's also worth mentioning that he, one of his, you know, one of the specific credited roles that David Lynch has on every episode of the show is sound designer. Um, and as someone who also has, I've also been a sound designer, uh, on a game, like just the, what you do, I mean, it's different, but, Nonetheless, like what you do when you're making that audio soundscape is you really have to think of it in its own context. And it's really hard for me to imagine Lynch wanting both audio soundscapes of those episodes, which also include dialogue and music and all sorts of other things to be stomping on each other like that. I think he, as audio designer, but also as director, wants you to actually hear all like if you think if you watch two episodes at the same time you'd have to either turn one of them down or be constantly mixing them back and forth in order to like 
it's just that, it's just that a little said, too messy. For for all we know, I mean, we're we are literally like putting words in Lynch's mouth it's and true. thoughts in it's his true. head, and yeah. he is a person who put. Uh, an episode out, the last episode, that literally superimposes images over the top of entire <laughs> chunks of the show. That's true. So, you know. It's um, also worth noting that he has very much a uh, fine arts and avant-garde background yeah. and would not be, it would, from another angle, would not be that surprising if he intended something that um, kind of unusual and ambitious and weird. Um, yeah, if we're going to see David Lynch now, uh, if his next project is being really excited about quadraphonic records or something, right. it's like, okay, well, maybe yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, but on a practical level, I think the show has to be able to hold up without doing that. Yeah. Whether, you know, regardless of anything else, I think you have to be able to interpret it without putting two QuickTime windows next to each other on your computer yeah. or whatever, right? I mean, uh, two browser tabs open to showtime.tv yeah. or whatever. I guess my one last thought on this is well, I don't, I can't say. Wow. Well, I, you know, I don't personally think that it was intended, and but I can't say one way or the other. I do still think it's an interesting intellectual exercise yeah. uh-huh. to play an episode of Twin Peaks on top of another episode of Twin Peaks. To uh, the, the question of are there any other episodes that could overlay, I would argue just run part eight of The Return, the one with the nuclear explosion, next to any episode of Twin Peaks, and just you will probably you be will, fascinated. Right. Like, you will definitely find yeah, things to just note. Put, yeah. You know, I mean, it's the dark side of the moon on top of the Wizard of Oz. Your brain, I think, is just is very good at and derives pleasure from seeing when things line up and from when there's mm-hmm. nice, nice synchronized events or when interesting collisions happen. And your brain is also going to be very good at dismissing yeah. uh, all of the parts where that doesn't happen. So it's always going to be a pleasurable right. and interesting experience. And this actually, I think, really goes back to what you brought up that we talked up a little bit about earlier in the episode. You brought up the film... There will be blood, and I was sort of talking about certain kind of filmmaking that that uh, really foregrounds scenes that seem meaningful, but don't necessarily subscribe to sort of a traditional um, linear kind of cinematic mode of storytelling. And I think that there is, I think certain not just directors, but you know, authors, um, painters, musicians, whatever. I think certain really great people who create things are able to assemble um, sequ- you know, sequences or canvases or whatever uh, that contain lots and lots and lots of very potent implied meaning and lots of very powerful implied correlations and connections and kind of, you know, sync up your neural pathways in stimulating ways without necessarily needing every single one of those things to be tidally connected explicitly because they're taking advantage of our tendencies as humans, as you say, to want to find those patterns and to want to c- create meaning. Yeah. We do that in our own lives as well. Um, and I, I think what, what often makes a really, really great work of art is when you enter into, when, when you somehow either by accident or by design, you, you somehow end up in a situation where, all of the raw material that's being fed into your eyes and brain is just particularly conducive to cre- creating and deriving that meaning yourself. And I don't exactly know why some directors and creators seem to be better able to repeatedly tap into that, but yeah, that's what makes people really good at what they do. It makes me want, 
it, like that, what you just said is what makes me want more than anything to be able to read the 400 page phone book script that right. Frost and Lynch allegedly turned into Showtime. Because yeah. while I'm sure, well, I'm sure there's more explicit plot connections in that than what we ended up getting in, in the show ultimately. Um, a thing that, that all of the directors and all of the movies uh, that you describe have in common, I think, is that. Um, I may, I may be wrong in this assumption, but, yeah. but my assumption is usually that those are the result of a director and a screenwriter who are locked in with what they're doing, that the screenplay for that is developed, has been iterated over, has been really ruminated on for a long time by at least the director, if not the director and the screenwriter, so that by the time film starts rolling on the first shot of the movie, the director understands intrinsically the point of every shot in that movie like the opening like this is this is a goofy example um because it's a wes anderson movie but when i saw rushmore for the first time uh rushmore you know it's a movie about a kid who's smart but basically incompatible with school and eventually like has you know his drops out and goes through a bunch of whatever misadventures the very opening scene of that movie is uh is him asleep dreaming that he gets called on in class and like well like a little jazz flute plays solves an outrageously complicated math equation up mm-hmm. on the board and then it cuts to him being asleep in class and then that scene basically just ends and it goes to the next thing and when i first was watching that movie i had no idea why i was watching that scene and how it related to anything else and i was really annoyed by it and i didn't find it funny yeah and then when i went back and watched the movie a second time having entirely understood the character i realized that of course it was a totally meaningful scene and if you already knew who that character was in the world that the movie inhabited. It was imbued with like, it was imbued with extra meaning and extra sense of like, oh, this is of course the exact way that you should be opening this movie. Yeah, yeah that stuff is fascinating. It's, I, yeah. As just another example, I suppose, outside of film, because I'm now my brain is like thinking about this in a more general sense, because I do think it is a broader kind of artistic consideration. Um, one of the other podcasts on our site is the Idle Book Club, which is a, a monthly podcast I do um, with my wife, uh, Sarah, where we talk about a piece of uh, fiction uh, each month that we sort of announce in advance and then talk about it. And one of the things we've done recently is uh, read some a couple short story collections, which is not mm-hmm. something I've done very much in my life. And I think uh, the the way that I sort of, I guess, kind of had to receive those, it kind of reminds me of watching something like Twin Peaks, The Return. We, we read... Um, you know, if you've read any, if you, I don't know if you've ever read anything by Alice Munro. She's Mm-mm. often, I think, very frequently referred to as the greatest living English language story, short story writer. Um, you know, I'm sure that's not a universal opinion, but it is a not infrequently held one. And she is absolutely fantastic. And one of the what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about her is how much her stories almost always take the same form. I mean, so many of them in the way that a lot of artists are kind of pseudo autobiographical, mm-hmm. you know, so many of her characters are young women growing up in, in rural Canada, sort of um, not given lots of opportunity or agency. And then something happens or they find a way to escape the confines of their lives. But there's a really powerful interiority. And then there's like often just surprising or interesting things will happen. But often that premise starts out very similar. And then the sort of you'll you'll read an entire book and maybe like two thirds of them have that starting point. But there's so many little interesting details that are different from story to story. And it's not always part of the 
kind of form of the short story often is that you get these like highly detailed, highly vibrant and resonant scenes, but then they end before you can ever know what to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, you're not, not going to have this like sweeping three act novel in which everything is referenced again and all of the thematic sort of, you know, overtones are like explained and everything. No, it's just, you get this like little piece of life and you, something happens that is shocking or remarked upon or some act of violence occurs, but then you don't get a resolution to it. Right. You know, you, you get something and you're left with something to reflect on. And then you read a whole book of this and then you think, oh, my God, like the totality of this says so much about life and living and people. Um, even if any one of those stories um, and sometimes they do. Sometimes she fits basically a novel like a novelette into a short story. And sometimes she doesn't. And it kind of we earlier in this episode, you know, I was talking about the idea of rewatching Twin Peaks, uh, The Return, with the knowledge that right. some of these characters are not necessarily going to get a full arc. Right. But, uh, but it doesn't mean that it that doesn't mean that they don't mean anything. Right. And having seen the entire thing once through, you're able to go back and have sort of the delightful revelation. Ah, the person making this actually did have a great handle on the totality of this. And it was me who did not yet uh, yeah. when watching it through the first time. Yeah, and that's just a funny thing to experience in a TV show because in a movie, again, you sit down it, you sit down with it, and you're going to finish the whole thing in the same sitting for sure. Um, and so it's okay to be confused about why anything is there or what the sort of total right. meaning of the thing is in the first twenty minutes. Because what's the risk? You're two hours later, you're going to have seen the whole thing. Uh, and it is it is a, just a strange experience to watch 18 hours of something yep. and be wondering the entire time. And then still you finish it and you're still kind of wondering. Yeah. Uh, but but how many movies have you seen where that happens? Tons. It's just that it happens over a shorter period of yeah. time. I still don't know what <laughs> I, I mean, speaking of Stanley Kubrick, uh, there are a number of his films. I still don't necessarily know that I know what they mean. Right. In a any kind of concrete way, but right. But the so value of watching them and the value of the thoughts that they create in your brain, yeah, is is, yeah. is high. Um, so here, you know what? Let's 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 read this email because I think this this continues on with a lot of what we've been talking about. Digger writes, "I have to think of the or maybe this is from our forum. It is from our forum. Yeah, sorry, Digger from the Idle Forums, which again, great." super fun place to hang out and talk about all this stuff because people have so many different interpretations and ideas, which is very cool. Anyway, Digger writes, I have to think of the dream and dreamer as a metaphor. The dreamer is any of us filtering, making sense, making judgments of the world through our own experience and senses when these same events can be viewed completely differently by anyone outside of us. As dreamers, we are creating the world we live in and imagine it is reality and that we know reality when all we know is our reality and that reality is mutable and inconstant. The past creates the future and Cooper's latest journey at another wrinkle. Time and destiny are dreams. If they can be changed, then the one who does the changing is the dreamer. But, like a dreamer, has little control on the full effects of any decision's outcome. If time is inconstant, reality is only one of infinite possibilities. So that is a <laughs> that is a an, an intricate but also very sort of open-ended and philosophical uh, interpretation. And I think it, it's worth... Um, reading that in sort of contrast to a lot of the really... Um, yeah, contrast or sort of companion. Yeah, right, to a lot of the, the really intricate... The, the harder, like, like, Cooper has developed a bomb to defeat... Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. I think all of those things can and should coexist as sort of readings or ruminations on Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And then here's a, just, a, the, just to diffuse some of this, like, incredibly... 
um, wafty talk that we're attempting to engage uh, in. Digger here. also writes, it was a Band-Aid. <laughs> so John Radiman on Twitter points out, the large power lines you refer to in Part 18 are transmission lines used to transmit across long distances. The smaller lines, like the ones in the Fat Trout Trailer Park, are distribution lines. Hmm. So there you go. Now I know what those are called. Okay. Transmission lines and distribution lines. If you learned one thing on this episode of Twin Peaks Rewatch, uh, it is that fact that is, un- I assume, objective and yes. true and not up to interpretation. Come for the weird emails. Stay for the facts about electrical distribution networks. <laughs> Uh, so here's something, again, going in a totally different direction. David Waugh writes, I was listening to episode 52, uh, which is the episode we did on part 17, uh, on the drive into work this morning, and you discussed how there is no point to the setup and payoff of Lucy understanding how mobile phones work. This got me thinking. I think the gag is that Lucy still doesn't understand how cell phones work. Lucy is floored by Sheriff Truman's appearance while speaking to her on the phone because she can't get her head around how a person can be in two places at once. In episode 17, Lucy says she understands how mobile phones work now, not because she actually understands that they allow people to move around, but rather that her original disbelief is now fully supported by the fact that there are two Coopers, one on the phone to her and the other she just saw enter the station. Let's hope she doesn't shoot the next person who comes into the station while speaking to her on the phone. Now that I've solved this major plot point, can you please kindly work out and explain to me Cooper and Richard's demeanor in episode 18, Diane's double at the motel, and the final what year is it seen? Much appreciated. Regards, David Waugh. <laughs> Sorry, we can't. <laughs> no, we cannot. We tried. That is a really goofy and good uh, yeah. version of, the, of that. Yeah. You know what this also reminds me of? It reminds me that there was a, a piece that... I think I don't remember if you and I mentioned it on the podcast, but we definitely at least mentioned it to each other or on that sort of group that we're part of um, ab- about the insurance guy who visits the uh, oh the, the, and asks about which of the two sheriff Trumans. Yeah, yeah. And there was some piece that made an inc- at the time I think an incredibly persuasive argument that that guy was going to be like the linchpin of the series and it was going to be this huge <laughs> like incredibly important thing. And it's like people think that was just a weird tossed off thing, but in but it's definitely. Yeah. Although now that I say that, maybe that guy was from one of the other Twin Peaks realities, and that's why he acted so weird. And maybe the two Trumans thing is actually more, at least thematically connected than than it may have seemed, even though it started obviously was introduced just because Michael Ontkane didn't want to come back. I like that someone in the Idle Thumbs Reader Slack pointed out that if you do a Google search, at least as of oh, as yeah. of uh, around the time last episode came out, if you do a Google search for Michael Ontkane, it has a picture of uh, the actor who plays... Robert Forster. Yeah, it has Robert <laughs> Forster as the photo that comes up. It says Michael Ontkane has a picture of Robert Forster, and it's the most Twin Peaks The Return yeah. thing to, to happen, where you Google the actor who played one Sheriff Truman and you were given photographs of the wrong Sheriff Truman. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that has been fixed, and I'm sure that it was because some algorithm completely misinterpreted, like, knew that it was supposed to look yeah. up pictures of his character from Twin Peaks, and it looked up Twin Peaks Sheriff Truman. If you search and- for the words Sheriff Truman on Google, it says, did you mean Sheriff Truman? <laughs> it does. No, I just... <laughs> oh, I would believe it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The fact that Twin Peaks confused Google that much and it made it seem like you exist between two worlds uh, for a week right yeah. after Twin Peaks came out was very good. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it was. Maybe our reality is is mutating because of that insurance guy. Mm-hmm. Google Google chants out between two worlds. Yeah. Uh, Michael Ontkin. Mean... <laughs> Michael Ontkin. <laughs> uh, Frohickey writes. 
I'm getting hints of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, where Orpheus is granted passage to the underworld to bring Eurydice back on the condition that he not look back until they've passed the threshold into our world. Of course, this rule is broken. He looks back, Eurydice is taken away, and Orpheus eventually is torn apart uh, by Maenads, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, and his soul taken into the underworld to be reunited with Eurydice. The season's ending seems to be a blending of that concept and a reimagining of what would have occurred if Orpheus had been at least partially successful and broken his own timeline before being banished into an infinite recess of possible worlds forever dictated by his muse, his Eurydice, the past dictating the future over and over again. I thought that was a good read. And I also saw on Twitter, someone posted uh, an old painting of Orpheus leading Eurydice from mm. the underworld. And the imagery looks so close yeah. to to the shots of Cooper pulling Laura out of I the know. woods yeah. uh, that it feels like it it must either be a subconscious reference or a direct reference to those depictions in that scene. Yeah, it would be hard to not. Yeah. That, that's such a powerful um bit of classical mythology that yeah. I think it would be tough for that not to be somewhat yep. conscious. Yeah. And that's actually a good example of something that, uh, I, I think that's a good example of the kind of interpretation and observation that is nice because it is almost feels like elemental. It's sort of part of, um, you know, I mean, it's part of sort of just Western, Western myth- mythology myth. and yeah. trope going back millennia. And um, people have also made really interesting observations about uh, David Lynch's interest in, interest in Buddhism and how that relates uh, to much of what has gone on in Twin Peaks, particularly this season. Um, and I, I, I like those comparisons and observations um, because they speak to kind of the larger intent of the thing and sort of help to situate like the total emotional space without necessarily needing to feel convinced that like every single, um, yeah. Lore, uh, every piece doesn't have to line up. Yeah, exactly. Um, Bob Le Samurai, Bob. Yeah. I'm guessing that the name Bob Le Samurai is a reference to two, films by the French director, I think Jean-Pierre Melville, okay. who made the films Bob Le Flambeur and Le Samurai, which Prob- are two probably. classic French crime films, and both awesome if you haven't seen either of those movies, Bob Le Flambeur and Le Samurai. I assume that's what that name is a reference to. Anyway, uh, this person writes, Kyle MacLachlan's last 45 minutes are a real rabbit duck of a performance. The closest thing I can compare it to is the splicing of Ian McKellen and Christopher Lee's voices as Gandalf the White in The Two Towers. It's uncanny. At first, I was convinced he was the doppelganger all over again. Going over the same scenes a second time, though, I can just as easily rationalize all the same mannerisms as coming from Cooper following the fireman's hints while being distrustful of his surroundings. I put this in the list of emails to read mostly because calling Kyle McLaughlin's performance a rabbit duck I thought was awesome. <laughs> I had to look that up. I've seen people say that, and I didn't know what it yeah, meant, but it makes you, sense after I looked it if up. If you look up the rabbit duck illusion, it's an old illustration uh, I think it's probably from like Victorian times. It of, looks like it, yeah. Of what could either be a duck with with its you know its bill pointing out, or like looking to the left, or a rabbit's face looking to the right with its ears coming out behind its head. So it's just your your brain constantly undulates uh, in, uh, between what it sees, and that as a description of Kyle McLaughlin's performance as good coop and bad coop is just like really good. Yeah, that it's a really good. It's a good touchstone. Yeah. yeah. It looks like this um it looks like the illustration dates back to an 1892 German humor magazine. Okay. Yeah, artist uncredited. Uh, okay, well, let's see what do we have here? Oh my god, we have so much email. Uh I really by the way, I'm sorry we're 
probably going to have to wrap this up fairly soon because we're running out of time on our end. But uh, if we didn't get to your email, I'm really sorry. We read a ton of email and printed out a ton of email. Uh, and it's just too much to get to all of it. Yeah. Uh, in this if, if you want to see some really good conversation about Twin Peaks The Return, uh, a lot of this stuff, though some of it was in, in our, from our inbox, a good chunk of great discussion is on the forums. Yep. So Absolutely. I really recommend going through and reading the Twin Peaks The Return part 18 and 19 thread. It's like 20 pages 17 long. 18. Oh, wow. What? <laughs> uh, 17 and 18. Yes. Uh, and that'll, pro- I suspect that that forum will live for a while at this point just yeah. because. We just got this huge injection of Twin Peaks that's going to have to tide us over for some amount of time, possibly forever. Well, Mark Frost's book comes out uh, in, at oh, the end of true. October, and I'm that's so true. curious as to what the heck that's yeah, going to be at this point. That's true. You know, a funny thing about that, actually, that I don't think that we've talked about. You mentioned, I, I believe you mentioned, and definitely a number of other people have mentioned, some weird inconsistencies between Twin Peaks, the television show, and uh, the Secret History of Twin Peaks by Mark Frost that seem bizarre in their in how unnecessary they are in terms of changes to Norma's uh, family's situation. Yeah, I don't, I don't um, think that Norma and Annie are related, or maybe Annie doesn't exist, and M.T. Wentz uh, doesn't exist, and Norma's mom died when she was way younger in that version yeah. of, the, of the world. And Mark Frost always just kind of did the equivalent of smiling and nodding when people pointed that out. Yeah. Um, Presumably think, because he knew that the show was going to end up being about, uh, ultimately about there being fractured realities and right. about there being inconsistency in all of these people's perception of, of reality and whether or not it's even consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that now that both uh, the show is out and he has clearly seen the final edits that Lynch did, I wonder how much his book, this book, is going to end up being explicitly about that. The new Mark Frost book is not... A lot of people seem to think that it's called Twin Peaks, the final dossier, and people seem to think that it's going to be about the events after season three. It's not. He said that what it's going to be is a backfill of these characters' lives leading up to season three, Mm. which almost seems more dangerous to me. Yeah, I know. Um, Because Twin Peaks, the, the secret history of Twin Peaks was basically the world centuries before Twin Peaks up till about like just the aftermath of the, of the season two finale. Mm hmm. And now he's going to backfill the, the 25 years. Yeah. And I'm really curious as to what choices he ends up making and what he decides to tell and not tell in yeah. that. Because maybe we'll come back to talk about it. Yeah. That yeah, that being a, a, a hole that you can fill in with the little tiny dots of things that are inside of season three of Twin Peaks has been all that I've really personally needed or wanted to know. But uh, we're going to get. A, what is probably again going to be like a two inch thick book uh, if the first Mark Frost book is anything yeah. to go by yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, explicitly stating a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. uh, alright well um, you want to do one more yeah John, this is a good this is a good wrap up I think Jonathan Anderson writes much has been said about the enduring legacy of Twin Peaks but what do you think or hope will be the legacy of the return Will we see new shows with a willingness to expect more of their audience, shows with such deliberate long-term pacing, more 18-hour movies, or is the return unlikely to penetrate the same way its predecessor did? I think my my knee-jerk take on that is that Twin Peaks the Return is less likely, well it is it is guaranteed to have less cultural fewer cultural reverberations than the original series did simply because the original series was a massive network hit also, that also, was seen by ev- like everybody. In an but, era that was pre-ubiquitous cable TV, let alone pre-internet streaming. Like if you look at, uh, and like there, I remember around the time season three of Twin Peaks was sort of 
bubbling up and becoming material, people uh, were circulating like a page from TV Guide or from a local newspaper's TV listings at the time. And it was a reminder that there were basically still the three major networks and a couple of outliers on cable. But it was like, what's on right now? Family Matters, Twin Peaks, and sports. It's like, that's what <laughs> right. most of America had on yeah. TV or something, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if you're going to turn on TV at whatever time it was on, whatever day it was the Twin Peaks was on, for the majority of America, it was a third to a fifth of what was available to you on your television set at that time. And like that, it's it's so hard for that sort of thing to happen. I mean, you know, you have Game of Thrones or Mad Men or something that will have a huge impact on sort of the critical discourse or the diehard fans mm-hmm. of TV. And just like the style of right. but those, visual style but those shows. TV shows are still incapable of Reach- sort of a sort of permeating the yeah. culture to the yeah. degree that that you could even do with television at the time right. that Twin Peaks was first on. For sure, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can we yeah, no, it's it's true. I think the uh you know, one thing that is probably the case is that among the audience of people who make sort of expensive, you know, television, I would imagine that those the shows like this one, not just this one, but lots of shows that are this anticipated and and sort of by you know made by people with existing reputations, um, they're probably permeate pretty entirely through the group of people making television like that, right? Because you mm-hmm. want to know what interesting people are doing in your medium. Um, but the different and 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 I would definitely say Twin Peaks: The Return is pretty unique in still in the world of television. It is not. It represents a lot of things that are absolutely, even in this age of um, high production value prestige television, Twin Peaks The Return is something very, very different. Yeah. Uh, but also television is already so many different things right now that it's that it's hard to have that same effect of like, wow, this came out of nowhere and showed us that TV can be t- something totally different because TV already, what does it even mean for something to be a TV show anymore? It can basically be anything. Um, I do think particularly part eight does stand out as a statement saying, I, I think that is an exception to what I just said and, and does really say, yeah, you can do incredible things on television that you might have are you can are clearly possible to do. I mean, we have the effects technology to do this kind of thing, but it may not ever occur to you as a showrunner that you could have an episode of television like this yep. and you can. Yeah, and I think that's amazing. Yes, like even, you know, a lot of a lot of TV shows that are sort of notable golden age of television shows will occasionally do the sort of quote-unquote risky one-off episode that pushes the show out of its comfort zone. But this... Oh, but nothing like But like, this. yeah, <laughs> pushing Twin Peaks out of its comfort zone... Exactly. Is like, You're starting well, this, from an uncomfortable yeah, th- zone. This is how, yeah, this is how far <laughs> you could go with your hour of TV uh, on Showtime. And if you could do that on Showtime, that probably means that there's going to be people trying to do that on... On HBO. On, or, on HBO, yeah. but then I mean on FX or FX, AMC yeah, or whatever. Uh-huh, uh, yep, just... Yep. That probably will never drift all the way back down to network TV. But But who knows what that's even going to mean in another decade? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? In conclusion, who knows, Chris? My favorite two words to say on this podcast. This series, at the the very, very least, puts some some weird, interesting outliers on the graph, right? I mean, it, it definitely paints some possibilities that are new and bigger. And while it's probably not going to be the cultural touchstone it definitely won't be the cultural touchstone the original one was it certainly does 
just widen that possibility space yeah. on television even more. As far as the actual reception to Twin Peaks The Return goes, uh, I feel like in part, like we, season two of Twin Peaks ended in a way that sort of the the like national discourse was negative. And then when Fire Walk With Me came out, it also was received fairly negatively. And yeah. the world, I think, has warmed to both of those things with time. Yeah. Uh, and the sort of, as I mean, what you're saying about the breadth of what's available on TV and just sort of even the in the 90s and 2000s the space of what was available in an american cinema also broadened mm-hmm. uh i think the critical discourse and sort of just fans willingness to embrace the end of twin peaks the return is wider than it would have been I think in the 90s true. but even it still has uh there's a lot of people who are not into the end of twin peaks season 3 but i and i suspect uh, even though Twin Peaks The Return was received positively relative to the ends of Fire Walk With Me and Twin Peaks Season 2, it will still be received increasingly positively and probably embraced more with time, is my suspicion, even though its audience is probably smaller than either of the two iterations of Twin Peaks that came before. I think it will rise I, in estimation. I think you're right, and I think it'll be interesting to watch that process once, you know, all three seasons plus the movie get bundled up into a new Blu-ray set. And once right. this filters out to Amazon Prime and yeah. a- iTunes and Netflix and all the places as just the third season of Twin yeah, Peaks. Yeah, I, I think we talked about that early on, too, is just, you know, we probably will either, it will be very old or we'll be dead. But at a certain point, the delta between Fire Walk With Me and season three, like the, the, the 23 years between Fire Walk With Me and season three, like 30 years from now, that'll be less time Sure. Then it's between season three and when you're alive. And at that point, it'll just feel like one cohesive bundle of work that exists. Sure. Uh, We don't need to literally wait that far. (laughs) But, you know, I I feel like the the difference in time, we have experienced that by the difference in time between Firewalk With Me and Twin Peaks season two. That's only a few years. But to fans in the 90s, it felt like this new abomination that Mm -hmm. popped up. And now, like... For me, it's just what Twin Peaks not, is. Yeah, exactly. It's always been there. Yeah. It hasn't, but it sort, of, yeah. sort of gets put in your brain as like, that's just always what Twin Peaks has included. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, on that on that weird projection into 30 <laughs> years from now and our time, I'll see you again in 30 when years when everyone perceives compressed. Twin Peaks as one <laughs> cohesive work. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, this has been great. This has been really fun doing this podcast. It has. I enjoyed it the first time and I enjoyed getting to come back. And uh, do this whole season. And I we will um, have this in the back of our mind for a future rewatch of The Return. We may come back and do a, uh, what is it, final dossier? Yeah, a Mark Frost book episode. Yeah. I wouldn't mind, you know, one of the... Um, one of the people who wrote in asked what our uh, next rewatch is going to be. This is totally indulgent and unnecessary, but I wouldn't mind doing something weird like a re like a not a rewatch but a for me first time watch of on the air the other oh yeah frost and lynch the only other frost and lynch that would be fun to do television show um starring i believe ian buchanan who is which um which man is that uh, dick tremaine okay yeah <laughs> all right so that just seems like it would be a fun ridiculous thing to do yeah but we'll see anyway thank you so much for listening through this uh, series of podcasts or watching it and and, or watching it on YouTube. Yeah. Either way. And for watching the show and sending in your thoughts and listening to our stupid thoughts and everything else. Uh, It's been a lot of fun and it's been fun talking with people on the forums and responding to comments and hearing everyone's Twitter thoughts and all the other ways people have gotten in contact. It's been hugely, uh, it feels like even though we didn't always have end up with time on the episodes to read uh, all the emails and thoughts, it has felt to me like a very community centric 
production. And yep. it's been super fun. I hope you all had fun too. I had fun, Chris. I can speak for myself at least oh, and good. say that I had fun. Good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back at some unspecified date. <laughs> I'll see you again at some unspecified date. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I'm getting hints of the orifice and Eurydice myth where Orpheus is granted passage to the- You should reread that because you said orifice. Oh, I did? <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Froicky writes, I'm getting hints. <laughs>